Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have an incredibly exciting show for you today. So what we're going to do is discuss the case of a woman who was born with Tetralogy of Fallot that was then repaired and is now at term pregnancy and is going to be induced for labor. And what we have is an amazing panel of experts. So I have with me Marie-Louise Mang, who completed fellowships in both cardiothoracic anesthesia and obstetric anesthesia at Columbia, and she's now practicing both of those specialties at Duke University. And she's really got an interest in pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy, really an expert in this area, and will be taking us through the kind of preoperative thinking that you need to think about with one of these patients and what we need to have on our minds. Then we've got, and listeners of the show will be very familiar with the one and only Dr. Michael Hofkamp, who is an obstetric anesthesiologist and the head of obstetric anesthesia at Baylor Scott and White Memorial Hospital in Texas. And Mike is going to take us through the actual obstetric management of a patient like this. And then to round it out, we have my good friend and colleague, Jason Vout, who is and trained in OB, so he did an OB residency. He then did a maternal fetal medicine perinatology fellowship, and then he did a fellowship in critical care medicine. And so he is really an expert in this area and will talk to us about the post-operative care of these patients. So I think it's going to be really fascinating. Let's jump in. Let me give you the case description. So the woman that we are discussing today is a 30-year-old She's G1P0, and for anyone out there who doesn't know what that is, it means that she's pregnant with her first uh, pregnancy and has not had any children or other pregnancies yet. She has had a prior repair of Tetralogy of Fallot as an infant. Now, she presents for an elective induction of labor at 39 weeks. She has a history of atrial reentrant tachycardia that was treated with an ablation in the past. She's tolerated pregnancy well, but has had progressive shortness of breath as term has approached. A recent echo shows mild left ventricular dysfunction. So, Marie Louise, I'm going to start with you and ask you to tell us about the preoperative care of these patients. Now, the two things that I know you want to cover are to first talk about the considerations for a patient with repaired tetralogy of Fallot who presents for elective induction of labor, what it means that she has, of course, the tetralogy, and that she's had this previously treated cardiac arrhythmia. And then to also talk to us about some of the practical bedside applications of transthoracic, transthoracic echocardiography and what a generalist anesthesiologist, so not someone with the extensive training in both OB anesthesia and cardiac anesthesia that you've had, but an anesthesiologist in general practice, what could they accomplish and what should they be thinking if they see one of these patients? Because, of course, this will be happening more and more frequently as these patients live to be older and older. So... Uh, Marie-Louise, let's start with discussing the preoperative considerations for this patient. What is on your mind? What do we need to make sure we keep in mind? Hi, Jed. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So first, I'd like to point out that usually when patients like this present, the labor floor can be a little chaotic, and your nursing staff, your OB staff can be a little worried about her prior history. And so your job often as the anesthesiologist is kind of to present the information and calm everyone down. So we all can't remember everything about every single congenital lesion. So I recommend that you take five, 10 minutes to Google the lesion and refresh yourself about what the possible operation the patient had and what she may have been born with. And so with Tetralogy of Fallot, we remember that what happens basically is your septum is shifted in development. So you have an overriding aorta. With that, you're going to have a VSD. You're going to have RV outflow tract obstruction at some level and then a hypertrophied right ventricle to compensate for that. So often these babies are repaired in the first year of life. The septum is closed. The overriding aorta is shifted and the RV outflow tract is somehow corrected. So what we need to know from this patient is what was her repair so that we know that at this point in life, what possible residual issues her heart may have. For example, with the overriding aorta, that aortic valve annulus may be larger, so she might have some aortic insufficiency. Depending on what was done at the pulmonic valve RV outflow tract, she may have wide open PI and no pulmonic valve at all, or just mild PI. And then with that septum patch, 
that may affect both your right and your left ventricular function. So if her echo shows a little left ventricular dysfunction, my question to the cardiologist is, what's going on with that dysfunction? Is it because of the patch repair or is it something else we need to worry about? And of course, what is her right ventricular function? So often you'll get that echo report and the RV function won't be noted on it. Make sure you take the time to take a look at the echo and really see what her RV function is. Great. Clearly, these are patients who need an echo, right? Lots of important questions that need to be answered and need to have a, pre, a pre-operative or, in this case, pre-induction echo. Is that right? Yeah, for sure, definitely. Okay. So you're going to get the echo. You're going to see what you're going to try to figure out, and hopefully they know what repair they had. And then the echo is going to tell you if they have, for example, the aortic insufficiency or the pulmonic insufficiency that you mentioned. Um, okay. What else do you want to know? So the next thing I want to do is I want to ask her all about her history. What did she feel like pre-pregnancy? How has she been feeling during her pregnancy, first trimester, second trimester, and now in the third trimester, as she's basically reached her maximum volume load, how she's handled this? Is she short of breath? Was she able to climb stairs before and now she can't, or is she just at her baseline function and has absolutely nothing to complain about? Knowing her status is very helpful for you to be able to reassure her, which is a lot of what we do is provide reassurance to the patient and the OB team, that she's going to be fine through labor while we support her a little bit. Great. All right. So that's really important. Got to know what's what have her symptoms been before and during, um, and of course now, right, while she's coming in for induction of labor. And I would imagine as she's being induced, as she actually goes into labor, needing to know what, what, what is happening. So in, communication is key, needing to be in constant uh, discussion with her so you know and uh, what changes she's undergoing. Is that right? Yeah, it's so correct. And with these women, forming that relationship and having that trust, and I often say, listen, you may feel something strange. It might be something little that you don't want to bring to our attention. I want to know every little thing you're feeling. It just gives them comfort, and it can be very helpful to pick up early dysfunction and early intolerance of labor. Yeah, that's and I love that you said, you know, it's not necessarily uh, obvious to patients that you want to know that. You can't just assume a patient will tell you everything that's on their mind. They may be thinking, oh, I don't want to bother the doctor, et cetera. So I think making that clear that this, I need to know everything, I want to know everything, nothing is too small to let me know is really key. All right, so you mentioned that on that echo, we're going to look for uh, potential aortic insufficiency, pulmonic insufficiency. What else on that echo uh, do we want to pay attention to? For me, the, the biggest thing is that that right heart function. Mild systolic dysfunction, usually they do okay. But if there's any RV dysfunction, I'm really going to be concerned and I'm going to be interested in what that heart does through labor. So I think we should just take a moment to talk about what's going to happen through labor and delivery and why there's going to be a stress to both the right and the left heart. It's all fluid, 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 fluid. I can't say that enough. So she's going to start contracting and you're going to get small auto transfusions, about 300 mLs of blood up to the heart with every single contraction. So you can do a transthoracic echo and watch through labor how her right heart is handling that volume. And if she's handling it well and she's not becoming hypoxic and she's not becoming tachycardic, then she's probably going to do all right with the very large autotransfusion that will come at delivery when your uterus completely contracts, moves off the IVC, and sends a huge volume load up to the heart. Great. So I think that's really, really a key point. And when you're thinking about volume and stretch of the heart, we often think about one measurement that can give us an idea of that is the BNP, the BN like Nancy, P like Paul. Is that, um, is that something that we want to measure? Jed, I'm glad you mentioned BNP. Yes, it is very important. So I like to have the OBs or the cardiologists following the patients order a BNP at the start of pregnancy so we know what her baseline is. We know that it can elevate a little bit with the normal atrial stretch in pregnancy. However, um, a lordly positive BNP value is a real concern for, for real heart failure and real dysfunction. So we always pay attention to that and get an echo. And with pregnancy symptoms overlapping with heart failure symptoms, such as shortness of breath and fatigue, it is really nice to have a blood test to help us determine, um, is this 
the heart or is this the pregnancy? Um, it has a very nice negative predictive value. So that can be reassuring for the obstetric team that, for example, a woman can continue her pregnancy and doesn't need to be delivered because of decompensation. Great. All right. So that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. Now, let's talk about the fact that she had a previous uh, arrhythmia that was treated with an ablation. What does that mean to us? What do we need to know about that? So I think it's really important to take a note of what type of the arrhythmia it is. It's great that she, one, it was an atrial reentrant arrhythmia, so that's not um, a super malignant um, arrhythmia, but um, she had an ablation, so hopefully that's been treated. A lot of these women then get repeat holters in pregnancy just to verify that they're not having any new arrhythmias because of the stretch to the atria with the increased pregnancy volume. But most of the time, the question I get is from the OBs about where should she labor? Do we need to have telemetry? And I, you can't answer this question blanketly for every single hospital. You need to know what your resources are. If putting her on telemetry means doing a vaginal delivery in a surgical ICU that's suboptimal and far from the operating rooms, then don't do it. Do it on your labor floor and bring a transport monitor and it won't have central telemetry monitoring, but at least you can take a look at that monitor when you're concerned and when you're in the room for delivery. Um, some labor floors do have telemetry monitoring capabilities, and I do believe that that's where all labor floors, and if you're being asked to remodel your labor floor at all, make sure that you have two to six labor beds that can have telemetry if needed. Yeah, that sounds great. And Jason, what, go ahead. What are you saying? agree with, you know, what Dr. Ming is saying. I think that a lot of large tertiary care centers, when they are remodeling their labor floors to accommodate these patients, um, are adding telemetry bed monitoring for that exact reason. And, you know, here at JHH, we have uh, four rooms that are able to, to do such monitoring, whether it's arterial line, telemetry, or even more invasive monitoring. Great. All right. So really important to know your facility's capabilities and then to think about what the patient might need. So, uh, Marie Louise, is there a difference depending on the type of arrhythmia? I mean, you said that was important to know. Do we do we need to think if whether it's ventricular or atrial, and whether that has an impact on the need for telemetry monitoring? Yeah. So certainly, if she had any ventricular arrhythmia that I was really concerned about, sustained VT, um, I would want her to have a telemetry bed. So then, if your hospital can't um, accommodate that, then perhaps she's somebody who should be induced and delivered at a tertiary center that can um, follow for, look for arrhythmias through her delivery. Okay, so definitely ventricular arrhythmias, especially sustained, much more significant than you know maybe some intermittent AFib or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. And the question is, how long do we monitor her for an arrhythmia? And I don't know the answer. Women have huge fluid shifts for the first day to a week. Um, and especially if they have real heart failure, those fluid shifts and arrhythmias will persist um, from what we know from CARPREG and ROPAC studies three to six months postpartum. So obviously we're not going to have her on telemetry for that long. But certainly when you think about it that way, having her on a monitor for a day is really not a big deal when you think about the time course of the fluid shifts. And then during that day, if she has no arrhythmias, you can take her off the monitor. But if you are concerned about arrhythmias, symptomatic arrhythmias, then keep her on the monitor for a little bit longer postpartum while you diurese her to get all the fluid off um, to remove the um, stress of the stretch that is causing the arrhythmia. Right. So that stretch, right, is really you just have these fluid shifts at this large increased fluid volume. You stretch that that hard and it's going to lead to problems. Now, uh, given that the stretch is, is significant, do we want to think about diuresis in these patients? Yes, always. Diuresis is never the wrong answer, or I shouldn't say never. But if you make a mistake, you can give her fluid back. So while she's pregnant, what the obstetricians will worry about is if you um, make her two intravascular volume down and the fetus doesn't get enough blood flow, you can see decelerations and changes on the fetal heart tracing. So I like to use that fetal heart rate monitor as a sign of end organ perfusion. And um, if a category one tracing turns to a category two tracing, we need to look at her heart and her function and her volume status. But certainly at the time of delivery and after delivery, when you're no longer going to 
talking about blood flow to the fetus, start diuresing her. Every single pregnant woman has fluid, a little bit scant fluid in her lungs, and every single woman has that fluid all through her body that's going to need to be mobilized. So getting it out in a controlled setting and quickly seems to really help the patients that we've cared for. Great. All right. And Jason, is that your experience too, that diuresis can be really key, uh, especially post, post-delivery? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the majority of these women who have, and I want a key phrase, an uncomplicated delivery, um, diuresis is likely warranted um, if they start if they start having issues. Um, but also a lot of pregnant women will start autodiuresing on their own as well. So just really keeping strict eyes and nose throughout labor and then postpartum I think is incredibly important, especially if you're doing cardiac monitoring at the time. Yeah, sounds great. All right. So Marie-Louise, let me go back to you. You mentioned, we mentioned earlier that uh, using TTE, transthoracic echocardiography, can be a really powerful tool in these patients. Now, you have a lot of echo training due to your cardiac anesthesia fellowship. What about for folks who uh, don't, haven't done a cardiac fellowship? Uh, what can they think about in terms of what they may be able to do with the TTE that can help in a patient like the one we're discussing? Um, so first, I really want to encourage the listeners to just start putting probes on patients. Women are a little bit easier because, pregnant women, the labor nurse has usually put her on her side a little bit, plus the gravid uterus has pushed her heart up anteriorly and laterally displacing it. So often your parasternal view in these women can be beautiful. Now, it can be difficult for people to move breast tissue out of the way and get an apical four-chamber view, but women are super amenable to ultrasounds. They get them all the time to look at the baby. They know what it is, especially if they've had a heart lesion or a heart issue. They're happy to have you take a look at their heart through their delivery. Um, So I would encourage you, after you get her comfortable with your epidural that Michael talked about, take a look at her heart so that you get used to looking at these images. The parasternal short-axis view is very, very helpful. Take a look at that LV. If it's nice and circular and contracting well, thinning and thickening throughout and moving in and out appropriately during systole and diastole, she's doing great. Um, But if your septum starts shifting, flattening, that is a sign that the right heart is not handling the volume changes very well. And I have seen hearts change through labor and delivery. So um, continual monitoring can be very helpful. Every time you give her an epidural top-off, go back in and take a look at her heart. And through delivery, if you can do continuous echocardiography, it's helpful, especially if you're considering using an inotrope. So it's simple stuff. Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. If she's unable to augment her stroke volume because she's got a cardiomyopathy or she has reduced function because of that um, VSD patch or whatever her lesion is, She's going to have to increase her heart rate if she can't augment her stroke volume. So if you're watching her heart rate trend through labor and it's increasing, despite her being very comfortable with your epidural, then perhaps she's somebody who does need inotropy. So ephedrine is a beautiful test-dose inotrope. It will release all of her vasoactive peptides. And if she responds well to it, then you might consider starting something like dobutamine. Great. And anytime I... uh think about dobutamine, I also think about its cousin milrinone. Is that another option? Yeah, so uh, I haven't yet used milrinone in a pregnant patient. I can't wait to to use it. I have um, thought theoretically about the perfect patient. So the perfect patient for milrinone would be somebody whose SVR is already high and has a little bit of reduced ejection fraction. And so that would be your patient with preeclampsia with severe features with higher blood pressure and is now having a reduction in her contractility because of having to pump against that high afterload. And milrinone takes a little while to work, so you will need to do a slow load in that patient through her labor. Um, the concern that people have with dobutamine is that you can get also get a decrease in SVR. I have not seen it. I have used it in a lot of laboring patients. Um, additionally, people are worried about arrhythmias with dobutamine. I have not seen it in labor and it is certainly an easy drug to titrate. It's fast on, fast off. So if you were to precipitate an arrhythmia, you could quickly turn it off and switch to another enotrope. Great. And then so the if, as you said, uh, those inodilators, milrinone and, and dobutamine, uh, great in a patient who's hypertensive. If you had a patient hypotensive and you needed to augment inotropy, 
you could use epinephrine, right? So that would be another option. Is that right? Yeah. And certainly if we are needing to augment her contractility, doing so may improve her blood pressure and her SBR. And certainly if we're using any of these agents, you probably should have a cardiac anesthesiologist or a cardiologist with you, somebody who can look at her heart. Because if you think about the cardiac operating room, we're not titrating inotropes without also looking at our transesophageal echo at the same time and deciding if this was the right medication to use and taking a look at its effect. So if you're doing this, I would encourage you to have someone who can help you obtain images and make great decisions about how to titrate the inotrope. Great. I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, What else are you thinking about as you're evaluating heart function in these patients? I'm also thinking about the filling. So um, how is she handling these volume changes? Is the right heart really stretched? Is the left heart full enough? Is the right heart failing and not enough blood's getting over to the left heart? Um, And additionally, if we're really concerned about her heart, which I don't think we are in this patient, we would want to make sure that we have surgeons on standby for for VA ECMO if we think that she might have severe heart dysfunction. Right. So that would be the kind of last resort um, or emergency backup would be ECMO if if all else failed. Yes. Okay. So, great. Anything else uh, to touch on here before we move to the intra-labor management of this patient? Um, No, I think just the important thing is if you don't feel comfortable using a TTE, then you should ask a colleague to come help you with this because it is certainly what she needs if she has any reduced heart function so we can watch and see how she handles labor throughout and not forget about that postpartum period, the first couple hours. She still needs an anesthesiologist closely watching how her heart is managing the volume changes. So if you're not comfortable doing it, then we need to call a colleague. Great. All right. Mike, let me turn to you and ask you to talk to us about the actual obstetric management of this patient. So what we want to cover here is what is appropriate obstetric management? What techniques are appropriate for a patient with, again, repaired tetralogy of Fallot who is coming in either for induction of labor or maybe you'll tell us if cesarean delivery is called for. So what are you thinking about in uh, these patients? And maybe let's start with uh, a normal patient. What's your thought process with a normal patient and how does it differ for this patient? So for a normal patient with normal hemodynamics and cardiac function, we do labor analgesia by trying to achieve a T10 level with dilute local anesthetic. And a lot of times the uh, kind of consensus on what's best right now is a technique that involves puncturing the dura, whether it be a combined spinal epidural where you're injecting medicine into the intrathecal space or whether it's a dural puncture epidural where you are puncturing the dura just to create that hole for future spread of local anesthesia from the epidural space into the intrathecal space. And so with um, normal patients, we can be a little bit loose and aggressive and get these patients real comfortable real quick. And when you're doing a CSE for labor analgesia and trying to achieve a T10 level, occasionally you'll get some kind of mild sympathectomy that will require some vasopressors. And um, and this is to be expected. And anyone providing labor analgesia will be cognizant of this p- potential outcome and have drugs on hand like phenylephrine or ephedrine to treat it. Now, in contrast, for a cesarean delivery, instead of just trying to provide sensory pain relief and retention of motor function, we are trying to create intraoperative conditions that are suitable for a major intra-abdominal operation. I think a lot of people, uh, we kind of gloss over the fact that a cesarean delivery is a big, big, big surgery. And so to get favorable intraoperative conditions, we need a T4 sensory level, and that will result often in a sympathectomy. And so even for normal patients, we are anticipating the sympathectomy and I think the kind of the best practice right now is to administer some kind of in continuous infusion of vasopressor such as phenylephrine or even norepinephrine prophylactically. So you put your spinal dose in, 
even in a normal patient, you are anticipating sympathectomy and you're starting phenylephrine from the get-go to attenuate that sympathectomy you know is coming. And so when you have a patient with pre-existing cardiac disease, be it a valvular disorder or a repaired congenital effect or some kind of pump defect with um, ventricular dysfunction, you can't slam these people with uh, a quick-acting spinal like you can with a normal patient. And so um, first we'll talk about labor analgesia. Even with labor analgesia where the sympathectomy risk is lower, you really want to avoid the, the big rapid doses of intrathecal local anesthetic. We don't really do that aggressive of things with a CSE for um, regular patients. We'll give maybe, you know, at most, um, I'll give 2.5 milligrams of isobaric bupivacaine, which can get people comfortable real quick. I probably wouldn't do that for somebody who had some kind of congenital heart defect. You would want to consider the dural puncture epidural technique where you puncture the dura with a spinal needle after you access the epidural space. What puncturing that dura does is it gives you objective confirmation with the CSF flowback that your needle's in the right spot. And then what it also does is it allows you to have some direct access to the intrathecal space when you inject medicine into the epidural space. So epidural medicine crosses the dura kind of by diffusion, and that's what exerts the analgesic effect. And when you put that hole in there, it creates a shortcut for the medicine to go from the epidural space to the intrathecal space. And it should be no surprise to you that the larger the hole that you make, the better the effect and it's not clear as to what gauge needle is best. In my practice, I use 25-gauge needles. It's been described using 27-gauge needles, 22-gauge needles. Obviously, at the 22-gauge needle, you're going to get a better analgesic effect, but you're also going to have an incidence, a greater incidence of posterior puncture headache. So it's unclear as to what the best gauge needle is, and that's still something that's ripe for discovery. The other thing that a dural puncture epidural will do for you is it's been shown that you get better sacral spread and sacral coverage in the second stage of labor. And this will be become important later on because what happens, and I'll let uh, Jason weigh in on this, is that when I do these patients um, in my hospital, the obstetricians often will want what's called a passive second stage where the woman is not pushing when the uterine contractions are what ex- expelling the uter- or the, uh, the baby through the birth canal. And then they want a good, dense level for them to be able to put forceps on the baby because they don't want the patient to Valsalva and have some hemodynamic changes associated with that. Right, that's it's- interesting. So the pushing itself, obviously, as uh, Marie-Louise mentioned, is essentially like an auto-transfusion of blood, and that is adding quick volume to the circulation, can cause problems in people with compromised hearts. So, Jason, um, you want to speak to what Mike just said? Do you, for these patients, like to have um, no pushing? So I think that that's something that's an individualized approach, Um, and I I really want to be clear for the listeners about that. Many patients can actually push. It's very rarely that, like, and, and this is our practice here. It's very rarely that we tell a patient that she can't push. Um, because there are times when a patient may be an amazing pusher, and she might push her baby out in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you've done things like increasing an epidural. You know what I mean? Like, we certainly have time frames. I would not let this patient push for, like, three hours. But maybe see how she does for 30 minutes. You know, what's her functional status? What's her exercise status? Has she been exercising throughout like her pregnancy, does she Valsalva a lot? We had a patient that had a very similar story without the arrhythmia, thankfully, but she was squatting 85 pounds throughout her pregnancy. So that patient, I'm going to say, I think you can probably push. Um, so I, I agree. There are certainly patients that have cardiac defects that we do like to have that block, and we will use a forceps for a, a passive second stage. But I think that that is a very individualized approach, 
And that involves becoming very intimately aware of that patient's exercise tolerance, their functional status, and their cardiac history and their current uh, cardiac status. Great. Thank you. And, you know, I think what this emphasizes, again, is the importance of communication. So, you know, like always, but even more so maybe with these patients, you want between the obstetrician, the anesthesiologist, and the patient to be having very close conversation, very uh, constant communication, so that... On the anesthesia side, we know what the obstetrician thinks is appropriate for that individual patient. And then, like Marie-Louise was saying, we know if the patient is having a change in symptoms when she does push, which might prompt a change in management. So all that communication is really key. All right. So, Mike, you talked about – oh, Marie-Louise, did you want to say something? Yeah, I'd like to add something. So, Jason, I absolutely love that you say it's a total individualized approach. And um, the Valsalva maneuver is kind of a controversial topic here, but – what the field is sort of realizing is more women can push than we used to think could push. Um, and so if we think about physiologically what's happening with the Valsalva maneuver, it helps us realize who can and who can't push. So at the start of the Valsalva, you're going to decrease your in, you're going to increase your intrathoracic pressure and decrease your preload to your right heart. And you'll continue to decrease the preload into the left heart. And that's what brings the blood pressure down. And then there's a sympathetic response Additionally, she releases the Valsalva and blood comes up to the heart. When blood comes up to the heart, it first fills the right heart and the pulmonics and the pulmonary circulation, and your blood pressure doesn't yet increase. It actually goes further down. And then with the continued release of Valsalva, then you fill the left heart, and then you're able to eject. And that ejection is a much stronger sheer force against the aorta. So you go from a very low blood pressure to a higher blood pressure. You have a real sheer stress on the aorta. So it's women with dilated and it's severely dilated aortas that we don't allow to Valsalva. And then it's women whose hearts really can't handle those fluctuations in volume to the extreme. And that's a very uh, small amount of patients that you'll say can't Valsalva. So I love, Jason, that you guys are letting more women Valsalva because we do think that especially if they keep their glottis open and make a little bit of noise when they're pushing. It's not a complete Valsalva because the glottis is open. Right. Right. I absolutely agree. And kind of to expand um, on, on top of the, di- the very dilated aortas, um, women that, you know, I have concerns about Valsalva would be like a Fontan's physiology or a systemic right ventricle. Um, and also to severe hokum with high gradients that have obstructric, obst- uh, obstructive SAM physiology. So those are certainly those women where we have that conversation with, about forceps. We want to make sure that we have faculty on at the time or at least on call that feel very comfortable doing forceps. Um, and, you know, having that conversation, hopefully pre-delivery or pre-induction. Great. All right. So, Mike, let me come back to you. We ta- you talked us through kind of labor analgesia in terms of epidural, dural puncture, epidural, et cetera. What if these pay- – now, it's not a – having had a tetralogy repair does not mandate a cesarean section. Obviously, we've been talking all about the, the management of these patients in labor. Um, but let's say you had to do a C-section for any reason. You might always have to do a C-section. Uh, what is the difference in management, if any, with this patient as opposed to your quote-unquote normal patient? So, again, with, with a normal patient, you can be quite aggressive in giving a one-shot spinal that would result in a predictable sympathectomy. With these patients, you, you want to be a little bit more gentle. And just like we were talking about before, Every anesthetic plan needs to be individualized, and some patients will tolerate more than others. And so um, a, traditionally, I know when I was a resident in the mid-2000s, when you had a cardiac patient, that was pretty much a slowly dosed epidural incrementally, and no one would, would dare dream of putting in a spinal. And that's kind of evolved to where now people have... Uh, accepted the use of a low-dose spinal that's combined with an epidural. So the thinking is that you do this combined spinal epidural in the operating room, you put your low-dose spinal in, like 7.5 milligrams of hyperbaric bupivacaine or less, and then you throw that epidural catheter, and then you expect there to be some kind of block with your intrathecal bupivacaine. And whatever you don't get with your intrathecal bupivacaine you can get with administering lidocaine through the epidural catheter. Now, the lidocaine through the epidural catheter can do one of two things. One, the hydrostatic pressure 
that's exerted by the lidocaine in the epidural space can compress the dural sac. And then that compression of the dural sac can kind of squeeze that level higher up. And this is something called epidural volume extension. And it's a somewhat controversial phenomenon. There have been some authors that have shown that this works, but the the larger meta-analyses don't show that it really exerts the effect that people think it does. When you're injecting lidocaine, even if you don't get that hydrostatic effect, you can get diffusion of lidocaine across the dura, which can exert its own anesthetic effect on its own. And so doing either a straight epidural or this combined spinal epidural technique with a low-dose spinal, you're doing your, you're getting your block slowly and incrementally. Uh, I can say that with a straight epidural, you're relying on good epidural placement. You don't have a fluoro machine. You don't have real-time ultrasound really to kind of guide you in this. And you're also relying on the patient having normal epidural anatomy to provide for predictable spread of local anesthetic in the epidural space. When you do a low-dose combined spinal epidural, you're accessing the intrathecal space directly, injecting medicine exactly where it needs to be, and you're also um, creating that hole again that's where you have medicine in the epidural space that's going to cross through that little hole you made into the intrathecal space. So um, I think that... Um, <clears throat> Using either of those techniques is appropriate. There is a, a case series that was done in 2011, and they looked at um, cesarean deliveries. They looked at 27. Uh, they looked at six uh, parturients who underwent elective cesarean delivery. Four of them received straight epidurals. Two of them received this uh, spinal anesthesia. There are no complications that occurred. And um, I think that another thing is, do you or do you not place an arterial line? And, and obviously, this is another individualized decision that depends on the, the functionality of that patient and what's going on with them at that current moment. Um, as I've gotten further along in my practice, more removed from residency, my desire to place arterial lines in general kind of has decreased and so I really want to make sure that I have a, a, a good reason to give, um, to give uh, a patient an arterial line. And typically the indications I think of for arterial line placement are either need for tight hemodynamic control, anticipated wide swings in hemodynamics, need for arterial blood gases, or inability to obtain non-invasive blood pressure. And this, these patients clearly fall into either wide anticipated swings with the expected sympathectomy from a neuroaxial anesthetic or the need to maintain uh, tight control. Uh, you want to keep them within a certain range. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't do obstetric anesthesia anymore, but when I'm thinking about this case, I, I'm thinking, man, I would never do it without an A-line. Um, but, you know, you obviously have a lot more experience um, than I do with obstetric anesthesia. So I imagine it's probably very provider dependent um, and how they feel about it, uh, com comfort level with, you know, kind of doing that A-line. Um, as you said, some obvious reasons to do it if you can't get a non-invasive, uh, good, solid, reliable, non-invasive cough pressure. This would not be the patient who, you know, every once in a while the cuff just keeps cycling and then spits out a mean only pressure, that would not be the patient to skip the arterial line on. But, you know, as you say, I mean, uh, if you as the provider uh, are comfortable without an A-line and the patient is, you can get really good, easy cuff pressures and they're relatively asymptomatic and they've been, you know, like Jason said, they've been squatting 85 pounds, you know, daily throughout their pregnancy, including now and, you know, the final stages, then, you know, maybe they're fine. So I think probably individually, depending on the provider and the patient as to what kind of monitoring you need. Would you agree with that, Mike? Yeah, I'd say so. And then just another side uh, bar thing about the monitoring for the labor floor. So at my hospital, we're a tertiary care hospital, the biggest hospital between Austin and Dallas. We don't transfer any patients out. We deliver all the patients that come to us. We do not have the capability to do 
telemetry on our labor and delivery unit. And this largely uh, stems from just the, the competencies of our labor and delivery nurses. They rarely take care of these kinds of patients. And, um, and so we could theoretically get a monitor in there, but their concern is that it's not hooked up to the central monitoring. And so for these patients that we do maybe one a month or so, we will do them in the medical intensive care unit on the floor directly below the labor and delivery unit. And it is a big production. What happens is that a labor and delivery nurse goes down to take care of the patient in the ICU. And then we also have an ICU nurse who's taking care of the patient to do the telemetry monitoring. And then we, we do what we do is we give them the bed that's closest to the elevator so that if there's a stat section, they can be wheeled in the elevator. It's not, not completely ideal, but um, it's, uh, it's kind of what we've decided is reasonable for us. And to give you kind of a, uh, a perspective, we just applied for level four maternal designation for the state of Texas. Texas is one of the first states to actively uh, do maternal uh, designations of care. And so we are most likely going, we've already done our survey, we're most likely going to be uh, certified as the highest level of care you can have. So, you know, I think that there are certainly going to be some really um, highly specialized tertiary centers like Columbia or Duke where, where Marie has been uh, and Marie-Louise has been. But, um, you know, there are going to be some places where, you know, if, if a patient from my uh, hospital would have to go to Houston or Dallas. That's a three-hour drive, and that's a, that's a huge burden on that patient and her family. And it's, um, I guess, it's a balance between you know what point do you refer, what point do you keep these patients? Right, and that's a great point. You have to obviously know your own hospital's um, capabilities, and it is you know if you have telemetry on the labor unit, great. If you don't, then you figure out what you can do. So let's uh, move on with the case. Let's say that after delivery of the fetus, the patient's EKG on the monitor changes from normal sinus rhythm at 90 beats per minute to 170 beats per minute, and the rhythm morphology can't be determined because it's so fast. So we don't know what's going on, but we do know it's 170 beats per minute. What are we going to do? Well, this this is quite concerning, and this is really when I wish I would have had an A-line if I hadn't put it in. <laughs> but um, I think the, the first thing you do is you try to assess the hemodynamics, make sure that there's, I mean, the, the thing that we have about a patient who's awake is that you can assess the level of consciousness and just look at the patient, if she can interact with you. That tells you a lot about the hemodynamics. Um, if there's perfusion to the brain, she's going to talk to you. If the perfusion is so poor that there's no perfusion in the brain, she's going to kind of go unconscious. So if the patient's awake and talking to you and able to interact, that's reassuring. You want to get the next blood pressure as quickly as you can. And then you want to figure out what you're going to do about this 170 beats per minute. I mean, this is something that you just can't let go on and hopefully resolve on its own. And so in literature, it's been described you can give IV adenosine can give six to twelve milligrams. You can repeat that a couple times. That can sometimes uh, slow down the the heart rate or break whatever rhythm that you've got. And if if all else fails, you can do um, direct current cardioversion. You put pads in the patient and deliver um, deliver an electrical shock in a synchronized fashion. You start off fifty to hundred joules. Uh, biphasic and work your way up and and um, cardioversion in the anesthesiologist's hands is not a fun thing to do. I've done it maybe once or twice in my 12-year post-residency career and uh, it's something we don't do very often, at least in, in my hands and it's something that we're very reticent to do, but it's something that we should always keep uh, in the back of our minds that we might have to do. Mm-hmm. Right, and I would just say obviously you, like you said, if the patient's awake and talking to you, great. Right. If they're not, then the next question in my mind would be, do they have a pulse? Mm-hmm. Because if they don't, 
then that's a whole nother algorithm. You go down ACLS algorithm there, and, and we could do a whole nother podcast on the code in the uh, obstetric patient, but we won't do that now. Um, but I want to turn now to Jason. So we've got this patient. Uh, she is uh, now delivered the baby. She had this episode of arrhythmia. Let's say we give her some uh, adenosine or we cardiovert her or whatever we do. She's now back in normal sinus rhythm. Jason, I'll give you a sec if you have any other comments on the arrhythmia discussion. But then let's say that obviously she's going to go to an intensive care unit and we'll talk about the management there. Any extra comments on the, on the management of the arrhythmia, Jason, before we get to the ICU? No, I think I think that um, that assessment and that management plan is very reasonable and something that I would probably do myself. And just saying that, you know, it's very hard, like especially, you know, doing cardioversion on a new mom or a pregnant patient is very hard, but sometimes it just needs to be done because you want to be able to save her life. Right. So, yeah. Great. All right. So let's now move to the ICU. So, Jason, you both are obviously an expert in maternal fetal medicine and surgical critical care. So we've now got this patient in the surgical critical care unit. I think it's safe to say she'd probably go there based on her you know, initial physiology, certainly based on having had this arrhythmia. Sure. So now you're there. And let's say the objective here, we're going to try to anticipate what could happen postpartum or if she had a C-section postoperatively, what complications might be unique to her given her repaired tetralogy of Fallot and her history of arrhythmias. Uh, and so, you know, I guess I shouldn't assume we're going to the intensive care unit. Let me ask you first, you know, would, would any patient with a repaired tetralogy go to the ICU postpartum or does it depend? No, I would say it definitely depends, right? Um, it depends on how that patient did in labor. It depends on how that patient does postoperatively. And also, too, it depends on a, you know, a myriad of other factors. So what was the underlying rhythm if you could find one after the adenosine was given? Um, also, too, does the patient, uh, does she have any uh, hemodynamic instability afterwards after getting out of the rhythm? And to keep her hemodynamically stable, what do you need? Is it an intermittent infusion? Or is it, is it inter- intermittent medication like IV metoprolol or PO metoprolol? Or is this becoming like an esmolol infusion or even going to something more drastic like amiodarone? Um, and then also, too, if they are getting a continuous infusion, can that medication be titrated on labor and delivery? Or does the nursing staff feel comfortable titrating that medication on labor and delivery? Also, two types of monitoring needs, whether it be telemetry, uh, ver- ver- basic telemetry, where you're looking at the heart rate um, after this event versus arterial line, would certainly warrant, you know, some sort of closer monitoring, whether that's in the IMC or the ICU. And then also, too, if it happens again, like what's going to be the next step? Um, is it going to be medical manage- management again? Uh, do you have an echo and can you see that there are changes in the heart that would require some sort of emergent surgery. Um, and then also, too, like Dr. Ming had mentioned, is this someone that may need VA ECMO if she has, like, severe right-sided heart dilation um, and she's decompensating? So all of those things kind of go into play. But for this patient, I think it'd be very reasonable for her to go to the intensive care unit. Yeah, uh, that sounds totally reasonable to me. And, you know, obviously very lucky if we happen to have an attending in the ICU like you who has both obstetric and critical care uh, training, that's pretty rare. So most of the time you're going to have an intensivist who has not also done OB training. Um, and so let's go through kind of some of the things that people would want to think about. What uh, do you want folks to keep in mind when they get this patient in the ICU? Sure. So I think the first thing is the fact that, okay, so we know that she has a repair tetralogy of Fallot. We know that at some point she had an assessment by hopefully an MFM, OB, OBGYN, OB anesthesiologist, cardiologist that said, you know, it's okay for you to get pregnant. You know, these are things that we hope. It's okay for you to labor. It's okay for you to push. So at some point in time, everyone was on deck for having this patient labor on labor and delivery. So we felt that she probably had good functional status. So what else could have happened to her that could have caused this change? And there are some things that are really specific to L&D that I kind of want to point out or mention. Please. Um, so one thing is, like, did she get a certain medication that could have triggered the, uh, this, like, reflux tachycardia? So common med- did she have, like, a very large deceleration and get terbutylene? Did she get it more than once? Um, also, too, was she a preeclamptic and was she getting IR nifedipine to manage her uh, high blood pressure control? Also can cause reflux tachycardia and, could po- and possibly trigger um, an arrhythmia uh, if there was an underlying one to begin with. What was her induction course like was this someone who got started her induction at 8 p.m and delivered at 7 a.m in the morning and it was like fine and all of a sudden she had this arrhythmia or was this someone who had a two-day induction that ended in a cesarean section also too what's the blood loss of the surgery or the delivery 
did she have a postpartum hemorrhage? You know, I agree with Dr. Ming that, you know, a lot of times Lasix is going to be the, ferrosamide will be the answer and diuresis will be the answer. But if you have someone that had a two-day induction, a C-section, and had a two-and-a-half liter to three-liter blood loss, you may actually be, be a little bit volume down. And so it's kind of – and then also, too, to manage that blood loss, what was used? Was it um, oxytocin? Was it your ergo alkaloids? Was it carboprost? Was it mesoprostol? You know, and some of those can cause some minor hemodynamic changes. Um, other things that would make me really concerned is this a catecholamine reaction from having sepsis or endomyometritis. So, you know, starting antibiotics if you have that suspicion. Um, and then also, too, thinking of cardiac diseases and pregnancy, a lot of times they... Uh, a lot of times they are like only the cardiac disease or the congenital heart disease, but there are times when you can also have genetic or metabolic disorders that go with it, like the George syndrome, trisomy 21, and those syndromes can have other implications of such as like airway compromise, cleft palate. And so all of these things you really want to take into assessment and into play as far as what can you expect postoperatively. Great. That was a great summary of all these things. And I think it's so important to remember that, you know, there are other things that could be going on. So you don't want to be so focused on the repair of tetralogy that you forget that she could be septic or that she could have gotten a medication that could be causing an arrhythmia. So super important. All right. So when we think about this patient, again, you know, you as you mentioned, you want to go through the different things she may need. And in her case, we think, all right, well, this arrhythmia, we don't think it's due to some of this other stuff. We think it, you know, it was due to probably volume shifts around, combined with her underlying history of arrhythmia combined with her history of the tetralogy repair. So she kind of makes sense. Go to the ICU. What do you want the intensivists and the ICU team to keep in mind uh, for this patient in particular? What are some obstetric complications in congenital heart disease they should keep in mind and other kind of acute changes they may see that they may not be used to seeing in a, a normal surgical post-op patient? So sure. Um, um, one would be certainly something like postpartum hemorrhage. Um, most of postpartum hemorrhage will be within the delivery or at the time of delivery, but there is something called delayed postpartum hemorrhage, which, which can happen 24 hours after the delivery. Um, so having someone that, you know, many times in the ICU, especially the surgical ICU, we hope or we expect the bleeding is stopped. Um, so kind of knowing that this patient could start bleeding again and what to do in those situations is very important. Um, another thing to look out for is hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which certainly can happen in women that have congenital heart disease, and sometimes this can happen in the postpartum period as well. So if all of a sudden blood pressures are spiking to the 140s to 160s, uh, she starts having a headache, um, you know, keeping your obstetric colleagues engaged and involved is so important, I think, for these patients. And also, too, um, you know, what Dr. Ming was mentioning earlier is, you know, the volume shifts that happen with pregnancy don't end after the baby's delivered. You know, there are a lot of studies that show that, you know, you know, volume shifts that happen postpartum happen up to weeks to months after delivery. And, you know, we are, you know, going back into the basic physiology of obstetrics, we know that blood volume and cardiac output can increase up to 40 to 50% in a singleton pregnancy. It can be up to 70% in a twin. And then when you add a labor, especially a prolonged labor, with that autotransfusion with these contraction, and then the 500cc to 750cc um, increase of blood and preload after the uterus contracts after placental extraction, you know, you could really be very volume up. And so getting an assessment of what happened intrapartum, what's the eyes and O's, were they really getting eyes and O's, and if they weren't, you know, how are other ways that we can assess that, I think are incredibly important. Absolutely. Are there things, Jason, that you would really want a stat call to your team if it happened in the ICU? I mean, I, what I'm thinking of, one example would be, you know, the concern for ongoing uterine bleeding, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be something like, I'm not going to manage as the intensivist. <laughs> right. So, you know, other than giving blood, but for a definitive repair, obviously I need you. So that's one obvious one. Are there others? Yeah. So hitting the nail on the head. So uterine bleeding. Uh, number two, she has a new fever. Right. So if it could be and it could be just, you know, breast engorgement, which, you know, that would be great. Um, that can be very normal. But, you know, she could have an endomyometritis, um, new high blood pressure. So does she have a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy? You know, and just normal things after postoperative patient for, surger, for our surgical colleagues and for myself. Like, is she having any mental status changes? Um, are there issues with um, uh, 
with any of like, is our fundus uh, large? A lot of times we think of postpartum hemorrhage as bleeding coming out from the vagina, but you can have a hematometria where, you know, the bleeding might be stuck in the uterus. So all of those things are just like very important for, I think, our obstetric colleagues to know or for myself to know. Great. All right. What, um, you know, one thing we talked about earlier with Dr. Meng was uh, diuresis. So obviously, as you said, a patient who's just bled three or four liters, probably not going to be immediately ready for diuresis. But a lot of these people may do better, as, as um, Marie Louise said, with diuresis. How uh, kind of soon do you think of starting that? So again, uh, individualized. There are patients that we've had that you know, we are diuresing them intrapartum because we notice that their volume up, they have JVD, you know, we, you know, their echo is looking different. They look like they're starting to have RV dysfunction. So there are patients that will give diuresis intrapartum. Many times patients will require some diuresis the first 12 to 24 hours postpartum if they require it. And using your clinical exam throughout is very important. There are patients that go home on oral diuresis. Um, And, you know, doing that in conjunction with their pediatric cardiologist or their cardiologist is so important. I will say when it comes to diuresis, these generally are young kidneys, and you would be surprised what 10 milligrams of Lasix can mm-hmm. do. So this is not like the 70-year-old that needs a 40-milligram IV of Lasix. This is someone who maybe even a small touch of Lasix will give you, get you one to two liters negative. Okay. Yeah. So start low, unlike our, you know, like you said, our 85-year-old patient with a creatinine of two, right, right who maybe needs 100 milligrams of Lasix. This is not that. So start low, and, and you can always increase. All right. Are there other things um, that can happen that you want your intensivist team to be aware of? Uh, no, I th- that's the only thing I could think of. I'll leave it to the other panelists if they have any other things to m- that come to mind. Great. And then some other things, uh, and then I'll turn to our other panelists to add anything they want, um, you know, to maybe keep in mind would be obviously, you know, this is also, in addition to being a patient who just had an arrhythmia and, just had a, and has had a repaired tetralogy, also a woman who just had a baby, right, who right. will need to start breastfeeding potentially. And so thinking about lactation, thinking about, you know, the things that maybe the obstetric nurses take for granted or know kind of off the top of their head that the ICU nurses and the SICU may not. So I don't know if we ever have obstetric nurses come down or, you know, at least be available to chat with the nurses in the ICU. Yeah, absolutely. And I wholeheartedly agree with what you said. I mean, even though that we are incredibly nervous and we're like, she just had this arrhythmia and, you know, we want to make sure that it doesn't become a malignant arrhythmia or that it becomes sustained. This is the happiest day of her life or one of the happiest Mm -hmm. days of this family's life and kind of honoring that and keeping that in mind is so important. So like you said, keeping, if she wants to breastfeed, keeping lactation consultants and and OB nursing involved. Um, Also to visitation of the neonate. I mean, like that will depend on individualized ICU, you know, protocols. But if you feel, if she's been stable for 12 hours or 24 hours and you feel like she can go to the nursery with an ICU nurse on telemetry monitoring or like on, um, on mobile monitoring, I think that that's perfectly reasonable and perfectly fine. You know, we want to keep that bonding, you know, happening. Um, because again, this is like, you know, an amazing time in this patient's life and in her family's life. And so letting her bond with her baby and her family, even in the ICU, I think is so important. Absolutely. I think those are all really important things to keep in mind. All right. I want to um, open it up for Mike or Marie Louise, if you have anything to add about the kind of post-operative management or anything else, and then we'll turn to our random recommendations for the audience. But first, Mike, Marie Louise, anything to add? Yeah, I love what you guys were just saying, Jen and Jason, about that this is still a normal delivery um, for two reasons. One, it's icing on the cake if she still gets to be with her baby, even though she went to the ICU. Um, and so we really should strive for that. But also, Jed, I love that you point out that a labor nurse can come to the ICU. Those labor floor nurses are expert at checking the fundus and checking tone and checking bleeding. And the ICU nurses, we can try and train them, but it's no replacement for a labor floor nurse. So I think it's really important to empower your labor floor nurses to feel comfortable to go to the ICU and really check her in the usual way that we check our patients postpartum so that we don't run into postpartum uterine atony and bleeding because this isn't the patient that will take a joke with a little bit of a complication or a little extra bleeding. Obviously, I think all of our women should get the most vigilant care postpartum, but these women really can't handle an extra unnecessary blood loss. That also along that those lines, your intensivists aren't going to be familiar with uterotonic dosing. And so if you have a woman who who perhaps has hypertension um, or lung disease and they can't have methergen or hemabate and all they can have is mesoprostol and oxytocin, 
you as an anesthesiologist may feel more comfortable giving a little bit of a higher dose oxytocin to contract her uterus and supplement it with a vasopressor knowing that it'll drop her SVR a little bit. So as the OB anesthesiologist or the general anesthesiologist comfortable with uterotonics, offer your support to the ICU um, postpartum for those issues. Great points. Thanks. Mike, anything to add? Uh, I, I agree with everything that was said. Um, I just, for, from my perspective and experience, all these decisions with patient care have to be individualized. And, and I'll be devil's advocate in one, in one sense. Sometimes the, the push for this maternal bonding sometimes can even get in the way of what needs to be done for the patient. Like, for example, one time I had a patient who we um, did a C-section on and she had appendicitis like in the C-section. And she was clearly getting some sepsis. We had to intubate her in, in, the, in the cesarean delivery. And everyone in the room was saying, we need to excavate this patient. We need, to, um, we need to get her breastfeeding and bonding with her baby. And I said, well, wait a second. This, this patient is getting to be a little septic. She's probably going to be need to be intubated overnight, and sure enough, she she went to the unit intubated just like some of our older folks we get in the middle of the night. And I'm not saying this is going to happen for every single patient. And I I am a huge advocate for uh, for women and buying with babies. And I think it's just each indiv- each uh, each patient has to be individualized. But I do agree with bringing labor nurses to to the ICU. We've done that at our hospital, and um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. This is a great discussion. Yeah. Great. Um, Jason, any last words? Um, no, no last words. I, I, I would echo Dr. Hofkamp's, you know, discussion point about making sure that, you know, with this bonding and, you know, mother-baby bonding and breastfeeding, that there is clearly maternal stability, right? Yes. The goal is just not to bond within the first days of life. It's to, go, it's to bond for the next 50 years. <laughs> right. Um, so <laughs> we, we definitely want to be stewards of that. Um, and just, like, it's a balance, you know, just making sure that, you know, that you have all your uh, T's crossed and I's dotted. Great. All right. This has been a fantastic discussion. I want to turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations, something you'd recommend to the audience that uh, they should check out. Um, Why don't we start with you, Marie-Louise? Anything to recommend to the audience? All right. So this is a big one, but I think it's awesome. And I think there are a lot of anesthesiologists who already do this. If you have not yet gone scuba diving, you should consider it and do it. And if you're going to be quarantined because of COVID, take a (laughs) Take This is the perfect time to get online and look at the PADI course. It's this incredible 15-hour course, and it goes through the physiology of diving. And uh, you can start your certification while you're home waiting to plan your trip uh, to go diving. Couldn't agree more. I did it when I was a teenager and have uh, occasionally scuba-dived since then, and it's really uh, just wonderful, like being in another world. And as you say, the physiology is really fascinating for anyone in anesthesia because sometimes you'll even have those questions about, you know, a scuba diver who comes up too quickly. Those will come up on your board, so it's uh, it's a lot of fun um, for that reason, too. Uh, Great recommendation. Mike, how about you? Well, just like you, Jed, I am a golf enthusiast, so my recommendation is for people people to go to top golf even if you've never picked up a golf club in your life go to top golf bring some friends you can have some drinks some food you can laugh at each other just a great time top golf is a lot of fun mm-hmm. you know i have to admit that despite the fact that i do really appreciate golf i didn't know top golf existed until about a year ago when a buddy of mine took me there's one uh, down in dc there's one opening up in baltimore but mm-hmm. i don't think it's open yet but we went down to the to one of the ones outside dc and it's just a ton of fun you kind of hit balls you get points you can play different games based the balls have trackers and if they go in certain areas you get points for them it's a lot of fun i totally agree great recommendation and finally jason how about you um, mine might be a little bit of out of the box, but I really love doing adventure races. So if you've never done one, it's a lot of fun with your friends and, um, it can be as competitive, competitive as you want, or as non-competitive as you want. And there's usually some beer at the end. So that's always nice. That sounds <laughs> like a blast. Adventure races. Is that like the, uh, what do you call it? Tough Mudder? Or? Like Tough Mudder, Savage Races, things okay. like that. Like it's, it's, I, I enjoy them. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. I have not done one. I read about Tough Mudder and how sometimes there's like electricity going through pools you have to swim through. But sometimes. you can. There are different ones you can choose. Okay. Uh, well, I, uh, that's a great thing to check out for sure. And I will recommend, if you haven't tried Jenny's Ice Cream, 
it is based in Ohio, and that's where I grew up. So I actually knew about Jenny's from that. But they now are in Whole Foods and a variety of other stores. It's pretty expensive, um, but it is some of the best ice cream I've had. And I recently discovered a new flavor. It is a, a buttermilk lemon sorbet. And it is amazing. It is just one of the best flavors. It's really, really t- – imagine the best lemon sorbet you've ever had and then just a little bit better. It reminds me of these great lemon ices I used to have as a kid. But it just in general, it's fantastic. It's really hard to find, and I haven't seen it at Whole Foods. There's just one random store here in Baltimore, Eddie's, that happens to sell it. But if you go and you can find Jenny's ice cream, any of their flavors are good. Their buttermilk uh, – I'm sorry, their um, – uh, salted caramel is also delicious. They, everyone makes one these days. Jenny's is very good. Uh, but that buttermilk lemon, if you can find it, is fantastic. So that's my recommendation. And I want to thank Jason, Marie Louise, and Mike for coming on and having this discussion. I think it's been fascinating. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thank you, guys. It was, thank, thank you for having us. This was great. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. All right, that was a ton of fun. Having a panel of experts like these folks on was really, I think, a great way to learn. Let us know what you thought. You can go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment. Let us know what you thought or what you would do with this patient. You can, of course, join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and the podcast is at ACRAC Podcast. And you can join the Facebook group. It's an ACRAC Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation individually on a -a one-at-a-time basis anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Huge thank you to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. It really makes a difference, and we appreciate it. And, of course, a big thank you to Kimia Kashkuli, our intern, as well as Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who do the outlines for some of the episodes, and to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed the original music for ACRAC. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and doctors Hofkamp, Meng, and Vout, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.